Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I'm your host. Thank you so much for checking out the show this week. Renoites is the weekly podcast where I talk to all sorts of interesting and important people here in northern Nevada. This week on the podcast, I am excited to welcome Ashley and Colby Frey. They are the owners of Frey Ranch Farm and Distillery in Fallon. They primarily produce bourbon. You've probably seen their bottles of bourbon and rye on the shelves. We had a good conversation about the industry of both farming and of distilling. They've been in business for a few years now, have expanded to other states, and been really successful. They're a pretty unique business model in that they grow all of the grains that go into their whiskeys, which is not a very common practice in the industry. That lets them control basically everything in the entire process, but it also means they have to run a farm and a distillery, which is a lot of work. It was great to be able to record this episode on-site at Frey Ranch in Fallon. They're open on Saturdays from 12 to 4, their tasting room and tours, if you want to check it out for yourself. And I hope you learn as much from this conversation as I did. If you have suggestions for future guests or ideas for episodes, please let me know. Shoot me an email. My email address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at renoites.com. And make sure you follow me on Instagram. That's at renoites on Instagram. And now this week's guests on the show, Ashley and Colby Frey. Ashley and Colby Frey of Frey Ranch Distillery and Farm, welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you thank for you. having us. Yeah, excited to have you on the show. So we're recording... Very often I'll record at home in Reno, but we're here in Fallon on the actual farm. Can you start, I want to talk about what you make and what you do, but can we start by talking a little bit about the history of this place? Because this farm has been here for a uh, longer than Nevada has, yeah. technically, right? So my family started farming in northern Nevada. It was actually in Genoa in 1854, and we've been continually farming here in northern Nevada ever since, and so we had farms in in Reno, kind of the Lake Ridge area of Reno, and mm. then came to Fallon in the early 1900s. And my grandpa actually bought this particular place in 1944. They used to call it the Douglas Island Colony, and it was this this beautiful ranch. is kind of the uh, some of the best ground, you know, around and everything. And my grandpa always wanted it, and so he lived in a dirt dugout for three years to save up enough money to put a down payment on this place. And and bought it for $60,000 in 1944. Oh. <laughs> Everybody said he was going to go broke because it was so much money back then. Right. What was he growing? What was the farm originally for here? I know it was a winery for a time, right? Yeah, a short period of time. And then so originally he grew um, on this farm. It was always wheat, rye, barley, and corn. He actually used to have a dairy. Hmm. But my family, you know, throughout the years has always grown grain, alfalfa, um, you know, animal feed, things like that since 1854. What else was going on in Nevada at that time? I mean, this is not a history podcast, but this is very, very early days. Who was he supplying with growing here? What was kind of the, the world of northern Nevada back then? I think anything and everything, but I mean, a long time ago it was the gold rush, you mm-hmm. know, and, and or silver in Virginia City and in Genoa, it was just kind of downstream. And so I think they, they grew a lot of food and feed for animals. I mean, back then you didn't have cars, you didn't have gas, you had horses, so you had to feed them. And so mm-hmm. I think they grew a lot of hay and grain and things like that to feed the miners and then also everybody else. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that um, the Newlands Project, so mm-hmm. the irrigation district created the reservoir Lahontan, which was allowing them to store water and really supply water to our valley here. And as you know, Nevada is the driest state in the nation. So this promise of water really mm-hmm. allowed people to come east, come to Fallon, start farming, which they found out was really fertile farm ground and can grow some of the best quality grains and alfalfa that are really sought 
you know, sought out throughout the world is what we're finding out. Yeah. Yeah. On the farm, we grow 100% of the grains that go into our whiskey are grown right mm-hmm. here on the farm. We also grow a lot of alfalfa. It's a rotational crop. So mm-hmm. we need to grow, you can't grow the same or you can, but you shouldn't grow the same crop in the same field year after year after year. And so we grow a lot of alfalfa. The alfalfa goes to China, Dubai, Japan, Taiwan, like all over the world. And it's kind of the opposite. The grains never even leave our possession. Huh. They, they stay right here with us. We have total control from what we call ground a glass into the whiskeys. And so it's kind of crazy, but it goes to show you that we're in the high desert. We have really hot days and cool nights, and that allows the TDN and then in the alfalfa especially to get really nutritious, and, and it's sought after around the world, and so they can af- afford to ship it all over the place. It's, it's huh. kind of wild to think about. Yeah, I've done a couple episodes around food in northern Nevada with farming. I had um, the Riverside Farmer's Market, Prema Farm. So it's like there is farming in northern Nevada, but I think it's not often thought of as a place where you can grow a lot. But I know you do a lot of grains and, and things that grow well here. Can you just talk a little bit more about the farming conditions in northern Nevada? Like, I I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear that this is a great place to grow things. Yeah. So we're in Fallon, Nevada. Fallon's mm-hmm. considered the oasis of Nevada. And so we have that beautiful water comes down the Truckee and the Carson Rivers to us. It goes through uh, Derby Dam where it goes through the Truckee Canal to Lahontan and then the Carson River. And um, that's what we use to irrigate all of our crops with. So it's this beautiful ground. The soil's great. We're kind of in this little banana belt in northern Nevada where it's a little bit warmer. We have a little bit longer growing season than other places, even in northern Nevada here. So we can grow really high quality crops. We're in the high desert. And so we get, like I said earlier, really hot days, cool nights. It allows the plants to grow during the hot days and breathe during the cool nights. Mm -hmm. And I mean, everybody knows northern Nevada. I mean, you'd be 90 degrees at night and it's 50 degrees and you have to wear a sweatshirt at night sometimes. 90 during the day. Sorry, 90 (laughs) during the day. I hope it's not 90 at night. But I mean, it's crazy. And so that's that's just the beautiful part of being in Nevada here. And, And that's really important for the whiskey too, where... We have four distinct seasons. In the barrel house, it gets really hot during the summers and cold during the winters. Mm -hmm. And in the barrel, it expands during the hot summers and it contracts during the cold winters and it pushes into the wood and it pulls it out of the wood. There's actually pressure in the barrel during the summer (laughs) and a vacuum during the winters. That's really important. And so when we went to Kentucky, we went on the bourbon trail and Everybody says, oh, Kentucky's great for bourbon because we have four seasons. And we laughed because we have all four in one day sometimes, (laughs) you know, in northern Nevada. Yeah. Is there a difference? I mean, obviously, there's a difference in the quality of the grain that goes into a whiskey, and it makes a big difference. Does that make a big difference where you grow to kind of what the final result of the crop is before it ends up in the whiskey? Like, is there a difference in the quality between grain grown here versus in Kentucky versus in Iowa or wherever they grow a lot of corn and those kind of things? Yeah, anywhere you go, the growing conditions are obviously very different, but grain is easier to get more consistent from maybe place to place. Mm. But rarely is grain grown for an actual purpose. So traditionally, grain is just grown for the commodity market. The biggest user of grain is the cattle industry. So they use a tremendous amount of grain. And so there's certain things that they do that might increase the yield and also increase the quality, but they're not good for distilling purposes. And Mm -hmm. like one of them that we talk about all the time is like nitrogen fertilizer. Typically, the more you put on, the more yield you get. That's not necessarily always good because nitrogen boosts protein in grains. Protein and starch are inverse. So when one goes up, the other goes down. Hmm. which is not good for us because we're looking for starch in the distillery. And so by putting on more nitrogen, we might get more yield, but it's not going to be as good a quality. Now in the cattle industry, 
they actually like protein. They, they need the protein. And so more nitrogen, more protein, it's better. And then a, a lot of farms, there's um, it's, it's a great way to do it is they have co-ops and things like that where they'll have 20, 50, 100 farmers that sell all their grain. They put it all in the same silo and then people start to buy it, you know, different agriculture industries and things like that. So mm-hmm. you don't really know exactly who grew it, how it was grown, you know, what was done to it, anything. And and it, it was probably grown for quantity, not quality. And so by growing our grains on the farm here ourselves, we can sacrifice quantity for quality. We know exactly how it was grown. There's different varieties of grains. I mean, wheat, for example, there's winter wheat, there's spring wheat. Then there's soft red, hard red, soft white, hard white, you know, all these different types of wheat. And then in each one of those categories, there's several hundred different varieties like of each one of those. Mm-hmm. By growing it ourselves, we knew exactly what we're growing, how we're, how it was grown, and we know it was grown for an actual purpose rather than just uh, the open market. Right. And th- so this is an estate distillery. That's what that's called, right? Where everything is grown here on site. Yeah. And, and we just coined that term from the wine industry. Okay. So, I mean, an estate winery is a winery that has total control over the entire process. Mm-hmm. So it's... It's grown, bottled, and produced by the winery, and so it's the same as the distillery. The problem is there's no like definition in well, the yeah, distilling world. Well, yeah, because nobody else is doing that. Yeah, nobody. So yeah, it kind of makes it tough. There's no regulation mm-hmm. on that. So as Colby mentioned, we kind of coined that ourselves, but it it doesn't have much meaning because there's no regulation on it. Anybody can really. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask if this is a, a common practice in the distilling industry, no. and it sounds like no. Very rare. I mean, there's a few farm distilleries in the United States. They grow some of their grains, but very, very few in the world grow a hundred percent of their grains. And even further, like if they do grow, maybe it's one, it's it's barley for mm-hmm. a single malt or something like that, but not wheat, rye, barley, and corn mm-hmm. all on the same farm. Then we also malt here on site. So like we use a, a percentage of malted barley in all of our bourbons and that's malted right here on site. Ashley has a saying that she tells everybody in the tasting room. So I'll let her say it. But- that none of the ingredients have ever left our possession until our customers actually come to our tasting room, purchase mm-hmm. a bottle or our distributor picks up product to sell to retailers. Yeah. Does that create some natural limits on what you're able to do with the distillery? Because you're limited by, obviously, the amount of land that you have on the farm. The opposite, though, to be honest. Yeah, I'll let Colby elaborate. So last year, for example, we grew about 500 acres of grain. Um, We farm about 2,500 acres, so we could grow a lot more. Mm. We don't ever want to grow 100% grain because we need that rotation of alfalfa. It's good for the soil. Like I said, it's a legume. It fixes its own nitrogen. It kind of lets the soil rest. It has deep tap roots that help with water percolation and drainage and things like that. So so we have lots of room to grow. But last year, we made about 80,000 9-liter cases. That's 12 bottles per cases of whiskey that... We can't sell it right away because we have to put it in barrels and wait a long time. But that's in the pipeline, you know, and every year we increased our production to get to there. But that's a lot of whiskey. Like it's, it's, um, I, I, there's a limitation obviously to how Mm -hmm. much we can grow, but it's, we still have more room to grow and we're making a lot of whiskey right now. But from an innovation standpoint, I think growing our own grains and malting on site has allowed us to innovate further than anyone else. You can't like, call up a malting company and say, I want you to malt rye or malt corn. And we're able to take our own grain, malt them all and create products like our quad malt, where we have the same exact mash bill recipe as our bourbon. But instead of just having the barley malted, we malt all four grains. Mm. So that is kind of fun. And then we have a 100% malted corn 
bourbon, you can call it bourbon, and we take 100% corn, our corn, we malt it, and then distill it in Egypt, where you just wouldn't be able to do that if you didn't have the growing and the malting capabilities. Malting is, for anybody that doesn't know what that is. I was about to ask, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's where you, essentially you sprout the grain. So, so grain is a seed. You take that seed, you hydrate it, so you get it to absorb moisture, and then you put it inside the ideal germinating conditions, and you allow it to germinate. And once it gets to a certain point, you stop any germination or future growth by drying it down, and then you can store it for long periods of time mm. without it rotting or decomposing or anything like that. So basically, it's the easiest way to explain malting is you're just germinating, you're sprouting it, you're you're growing it. We can do that right here on the farm with our malting system. But like Ashley said, we that malting is one of the ways that we can showcase our, our grains because our goal from the beginning was to really showcase the grains that we're growing here on the farm. That's that's why we have the distillery. Without the farm, we wouldn't have a distillery. Like it was really mm-hmm. that's our goal is we we've actually called this place the whiskey farm because it's grain grown for a purpose. And we can play around with different mash bills. So we also have 100% oat whiskey, 100% wheat whiskey, 100% corn, 100% barley, 100% malted barley, 100% rye. We have all kinds of like smoked scotch style whiskeys in barrels right now in the pipeline. We have a smoked oat and rye. We have five grain bourbons where our normal bourbon is wheat, rye, barley, and corn. It's a four grain. Mm. We have a five grain where we added oats as a fifth grain. We have the one where we've replaced rye in the mash bill with oats, where we replaced wheat with oats. And kind of the fun part for us is to like showcase the grains and, and the different flavors that each grain contributes yeah. Is is that part of the fun of having the ability to play with different things in a way that you might not be able to do in a different type of distillery, that you can be innovative, that you can create things, that you can have fun yeah. and see what works and what doesn't? I definitely think so. I think you wouldn't know what 100% malted corn tastes like unless you you know grew the grains and had the capability to malt it on site. But mm-hmm. for us, I think that has been some of the more fun, but also very challenging parts because in the distillery, bourbon is probably the easiest product to distill, but the team at the distillery, they just can't stand when we do oat whiskey. (laughs) It plugs up all the drinks, but but we love it, and they love it too. Not it the drinks, tastes it plugs up the stills, the still, it yeah, up the everything. <laughs> you know, I'm not like over it's, there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun, and I think um, for, it's fun for us. We get to drink it, but it's been great to really be able to showcase some of the more um, unusual grains that we grow, like mm-hmm. like the oat. You don't see a lot of oat whiskeys on the market, if any. I came here a few days ago. I know you do the tasting room is open on Saturdays and the first, what is it, the first Saturday of the month that you're doing the food truck? Yeah. So first Saturday of every month from, let's see, um, May through August, we'll be doing a food truck series, which is great because we've got a beautiful lawn. You can just sit back, enjoy, you know, Northern Nevada summers and sip some whiskey and have some lunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I tried the oat whiskey and uh-huh. it was really good. And I had never yeah. heard of oat whiskey yeah. before. So when I went to the tasting room, I was like, what the, what the heck oat whiskey? Yeah. And it was, it was really great. So I think having that ability to try new things is really fun, not just for you, but also for people who mm-hmm. are coming to visit, who are tasting things to have something new. We really want to replicate the tasting room to what we experience, you know, on a day-to-day basis. So we're constantly tasting through our whiskeys, whether it's single barrels or we've got a, um, what is sitting back here? It's a, a five grain that we're going to taste shortly. And we want our customers to be able to experience what we get experience tasting through all these whiskey, pulling out tasting notes, understanding how the Oh, is going to contribute to the final, you know, 
tastings of the whiskey versus like 100% rye mm. or 100% wheat and really what those grains flavors are providing for the whiskey. Yeah. And we were talking before we hit record about kind of the experience mm-hmm. plays into the taste, right? Mm-hmm. If you were in a setting, if you were, you know, everything that we do is kind of tied to our our, our memories and our experiences yeah. and how we feel comfortable and joyous and things. Can you talk a little bit about that part of yeah. the tasting room and the the space here? Sure. So um, we we always talk about like, what's your favorite whiskey or what do you enjoy drinking? And for me, it's it's about what you enjoy and the flavor profiles, but it's also about the experience. So coming out to the farm, seeing the grains that you grow, really smelling the aromas from the barrel house to the fermentation tanks, it, it really is going to lend to a different experience than, you know, sitting at your home or sitting at a bar where you have just a two ounces of whiskey. So mm-hmm. for me, it's more about the experience and who you're with, what you're experiencing that day. Yeah. So you're running basically two big operations here. You are a farm and you are also a distillery. And I think for most distilleries, they don't have to worry about the farming. And most farms, like you said, they're growing just for for exports or whatever. It's all getting mixed together. So what's it like having to balance two big complex operations and make them work together? Occasionally there's, I wouldn't say slow times, but there's there's normal times. And then sometimes there's like crazy busy times and we're Right now, I'm right in the middle of a super busy on the farm because this winter we had so much moisture, which I don't want to complain about because I'm very fortunate that we had moisture to irrigate all of our crops and everything else. But it kept us off of our fields. It was so muddy and wet and everything else that we couldn't get any field work done. We mm. couldn't. Um, we we're we're building ditches and all kinds of stuff right now, and we should have done that all winter, but we couldn't do it. So right now, we're probably double busy on the farm. So we're working. 14 to 16 hours a day on the farm and then occasionally like some distillery stuff. Um, and then other times it'll be mostly distillery, you know? And so like farming is very seasonal. Mm-hmm. And so we just try to um, manage it the best we can in that, that aspect. Yeah. And I think we also um, have been very fortunate to have a really strong team underneath us. So everything from Russell, who's leading the distilling team and um, the bottling line, we've got a wonderful team that's here on site distilling from five in the morning till 10 at night, which is awesome. And then we've got a really, really strong marketing team that handles everything from trade to the digital strategy to tasting room experience. So mm-hmm. really happy there. And then Colby has a really strong farm team right now. You know, they're balancing everything from irrigating to weather to, you know, I can't get on the field because it rained too much last night. So maybe go in the shop and do some maintenance work on the tractors mm-hmm. and just, you know, stay busy. It really allows us to kind of do fun stuff like the podcast or travel to different areas like Las Vegas or Phoenix where we just launched. And I'm actually getting ready to go to Ohio at the end of the month, which is going to be a lot of fun. But we wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't have a great team. Mm-hmm. The history of Frey Ranch is mostly as a farm and distilling is relatively new, right, compared to the history of the farm. How did you learn the distilling process? What was it like kind of adding distilling to all of the farming that was happening already. We actually got our license to legally start distilling in 2006. There were no state laws in Nevada, though, until 2013. Mm. And so um, we basically learned distilling uh, on our own. Like we we built our first few stills and kind of got the basics of distillation down and, and kind of figured it out. And then it 
kind of gave us the confidence to build a big distillery and to push to get the laws passed. And, you know, and so finally in 2013, we got the laws passed. Yeah. What, what was that legal process like? Because I didn't realize that was there just no laws about what distilleries could or couldn't do? Was it? Yeah, uh, there was there was not only no laws, there was no tax structure. So mm. obviously the state is after the tax money. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and that's kind of where the problem lied is that there was just no... There's no tax structure for us to legally sell mm-hmm. any spirits here. We and could make it. We just couldn't sell it or so, sample yeah. it. Our, our first license from 2006 till 2013 was a federal experimental license, which meant we could make it, age it, experiment with it. We just couldn't sell it or let anybody else taste it. Oh, okay. And oh, you so, couldn't even you couldn't even give it away. No, no. no. That, because, <laughs> and it's because it's uh, that same thing. There's federal taxes too that they wouldn't be getting if we mm-hmm. were giving it away, or state taxes and everything else. And so we just basically. We could experiment with it, which was kind of a blessing in disguise. It gave us a long time to kind of figure out what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. But the the legislative process was super fun as a farmer going around talking to all the mm. you know the legislators and just seeing how they they work and the backdoor things that always happen and and things like that. And meeting them in their offices and mm-hmm. it was super fun and we learned a lot. Did you find that they were generally helpful and like obviously? I assume our legislators want businesses to grow and thrive in the state. So did you find it, did you find them helpful? Did you find those relationships to be good along the way? Yeah, they were great. Um, the only the only one that, not I don't even remember the name of him, but in 2013, we were almost ready to get the laws passed. And it was like the last day, the last hearing, the last everything. And if it didn't get approved that day, it would have gotten dropped, the mm-hmm. whole bill. But he said, I don't know why anybody needs to buy more than two bottles of whiskey per month. I move that we make it two bottles per person per month sales in the tasting room. Uh, and we're like, oh, we couldn't <laughs> really do anything about right. it. And we had, we tried to do something about it. We couldn't because the next day was like, you know, the end of the session or mm-hmm. drop day or whatever it's called. So we, we had to go with it. So we could, the first two years, we could only sell two bottles per person per month. And then the next session, we went back and, and got it raised back mm. to where it should be. Yeah, that was kind of a, um, like a... A learning moment yeah, to where like, right. that's how that stuff yeah. happens. Like right. the last, they can just change it the last minute. No, yeah. Nobody can do anything just, about just it. Just like yeah. one random person can yeah. throw a wrench and everything. Right. Because you think about a lot of our customers that come to the tea room, they're driving through. They're not from Northern Nevada. They're coming from Sacramento or... Um, even Idaho, Oregon, we have customers Arizona, from all over. Yeah, Arizona. Morgan. And they want to take back gifts. And yeah. if they can only take two bottles, you know, while they're not drinking it, they want to share it. Yeah. Or, without or that. we might have six different types of right. whiskey in our mm. tasting room and they want to buy one of each and take it home and try it with their friends or whatever. And we yeah. only buy two very, bottles. It's really... Very thankful that got changed. Yeah. Yeah. For a while, you during the experimental license, you weren't just doing whiskey, right? You were you tried other spirits as well. Yeah. Uh, what was that process like? Because I don't know, how, I don't know how you make any other spirits or what grains and things go into them. What was that process like? You know, experimenting with other uh, other spirits. Um, so I mean, so vodka, for example, is could be made out of anything as long as you distill it to ninety five percent alcohol or more. And so our vodka was actually the same as our bourbon mash bill. Hmm. Then, but distilled higher but distilled and then obviously 95%, not percent yeah. Whereas one of the requirements for bourbon is it can't be distilled to more than 80% alcohol, 160 proof. Oh, okay. That means you have to leave some of the flavors with it. Whereas vodka, you have to distill out most or all of the flavor. Huh. And so, you know, that was kind of fun. And then gin is basically you take a vodka base 
and you flavor it with different botanicals. And so there's a few ways that you can do that. You can put them right in the mash cooker and they call it steep them. Mm -hmm. There's a gin basket that you could put the botanical, the vapor that comes off the stills through a gin basket and extract some of the flavors and things like that. We made absinthe. One day somebody said, you can't make absinthe. And we're like, me and <laughs> Russell, the, our master distiller is like, yeah, right. Watch this. You know, right. I want to bet. Yep. <laughs> and so um, that was kind of fun. We made brandy, which is made from any wine, which is made from fruit. And so. We even did um, a barrel aged gin, which was yeah. really fun. Yeah. So we put it in a, in a whiskey I guess, barrel. yeah. You, I don't know if you call age or rested or. Well. It's only for, yeah. So the way the TTB is, it's the Tax and Trade Bureau. It's a federal agency that regulates the alcohol industry. So we have to do like label approvals and things like that through them. So we submit a gin recipe for, or a label, I'm sorry, for a barrel-aged gin. They said, well, you can't call it that. And we're like, why not? Because, and they said, that's misleading to the consumer because gin is not supposed to be aged in barrels. And we're like, but this was aged in barrels. So wouldn't it be misleading to the consumer to not put it that it's barrel aged gin? Like it's, it just had made zero sense. Yeah. And, and finally, Russell, our master distiller is really good at like arguing that kind of stuff. Mm. And finally, the the lady on the other side is like, look, I don't write the laws, but I just have to abide by them. Yeah. You know? and so I think we put barrel rested gin or something yeah. like yeah. that on it. And it, that was okay. <laughs> we're just. They were really popular. We have customers. We no longer produce them. We really wanted to shift our focus to mm -hmm. only doing whiskey, which has always been our true passion. But we have some customers who really held on to those last bottles, especially of the gin, and really cherished them. And it it was a great gin. We used um, our Nevada State Flower, which is sagebrush, mm. as Colby mentioned, to steep and kind of pull out some of those flavor profiles. But yeah, we only we only focus on the whiskey now, and we learned we, a lot. But we always thought well, of ourselves our or knew that we were a whiskey distillery. But the the negative part about whiskey, if there is any is that you got to put it in a barrel and wait five or six years. Right. And so that other stuff kind of gave us something to do. We played around with it until the whiskey was available. Mm. And then once the whiskey um, became of age, then we discontinued everything else. And now we're just whiskey. But we've always known we're a, a whiskey distillery, but we always tell everybody that other stuff kind of gave us something to do while the whiskey was aging because we could buy whiskey relatively easy on the open market and slap it in our bottle and call it our own and... Mm. But we don't want to do that. And so that's what a lot of distilleries do that, you know, maybe for cash flow for the first five or six years or something like that so that they can start generating in income. Uh, but we okay. didn't want to do that. We only have one chance for a first impression. We wanted it to be our whiskey made from our grain. That's what. That's why we do what we do. And so mm. um, why it, it doesn't make sense for us to buy whiskey like a lot of, of other distilleries might. And so um, we had to wait for it. So then we like, we made gin and vodka and yeah. absinthe and brandy and all kinds of stuff. It was fun. Nice. Yeah, I was going to ask if the intention was always to be a whiskey distillery. And it sounds like yes. Yep. What was the reason for that? Are you just big fans of whiskey? Is it the economy of it? Is it the most sensible thing to make here because of the crops that you have? Or why whiskey? Uh, so whiskey, for me, like whiskey's made from grain. And so um, obviously that's a big one. We grow really good grain. But when Ashley and I took over the farm, we were kind of looking for ways to showcase our grains like we were talking about earlier. We also really liked whiskey. And then we kind of thought, what better way to showcase our grains than to make it into whiskey mm -hmm. versus like a vodka, which is you're taking out all the flavor. So you're not really oh, yeah. showcasing anything. Or gin, where you're taking a vodka and you're adding other flavors that aren't necessarily 
our grains or whatever. You know yeah, what I mean? And, and I think too with American whiskey and just where the whole category is headed, people just love the story behind whiskey. You mm. know, you look at some of these legacy distilleries in Kentucky and there's always like, oh, my grandfather was a bootlegger. This is our family mash bill dating 150 years. And people love the story. And I just felt like we had such a compelling story with that love of agriculture and starting with the grains and our love for American whiskey. And it's like, we kind of laugh, like, do you ever hear any stories about vodka? (laughs) (laughs) You know, you don't because people just, they're, they're very loyal. A lot of, if you're a Tito's drinker, that's what you drink where people are really, you know, whiskey curious and they Mm. are collectors and they want to constantly try new whiskeys and pull out the flavor profiles or the mash bill. It's not just like whiskey community is amazing. It is. And then you never, I've never seen anybody go to a vodka tasting or whatever, but whiskey (laughs) tastings and things like that. You know what I mean? A flight of whiskey or a flight of vodka. (laughs) No, thanks. You see a lot of flights of whiskey. Last one. (laughs) Hey there, listeners. I'm interrupting the show just for a moment, as I sometimes do, to tell you about a way that you can help support the show. This is a community-oriented and fully self-funded and listener-funded project. The only way that it can be sustainable financially is through contributions from listeners just like you. There's an easy way to do that. I have an account on Patreon. Patreon's a website that lets creators like me connect directly with listeners and supporters just like you. If you go to patreon.com slash you can sign up to donate as little as $3 a month. That really helps the show grow. It lets me know that you enjoy and support the work that I'm doing. There's also some perks for patrons at different levels. I have things like merchandise, stickers, t-shirts, early access to episodes sometimes, and some behind-the-scenes content, things like a patron-only video newsletter I put out every now and then with information about upcoming guests and things that are happening behind the scenes. Really appreciate all of the support from my current patrons and hope you'll consider checking it out. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Renoites. And now, back to Ashley and Colby Frey. What are the big differences between American whiskey and uh, scotch and Irish whiskey? What's What are the like main differences there? What makes American whiskey American whiskey? So I'll start with like scotch, for example, is a, usually uh, made from malted barley. A lot of times they'll smoke it with peat, so you get that like kind of smoky flavor from scotch. Irish whiskey is also like a single malt type whiskey. It's made from malted barley a lot of time. I think it has to be. And from Ireland, not usually not not peated like the scotches. And then there's American whiskey, but more importantly, like bourbon is America's drink. For example, to be called bourbon has to meet five requirements. One of them has to be 51% or more corn. Mm. Has to be distilled to no more than 160 proof, means you can't take out all the flavors. Mm. Has to be put in a barrel at no more than 125 proof, which means you can't put it in a barrel at really high proof and then water it down. You're cutting corners, you're diluting it too much. Mm. So they didn't they don't want that. They want it to be put in a barrel at a lower proof. The third one is has to be put in a new barrel. So oh, okay. like a lot of times scotches will get put in used bourbon barrels or sherry casks or, you know, things like that. Other used barrels, mm-hmm. but bourbon always has to go in new barrels. And then the fifth one is bourbon has to be made in the United States. Oh, okay. So like we could make a tequila type liquor, but we couldn't call it tequila. That only comes from certain regions in Mexico. We can make a scotch style whiskey. Mm-hmm. We just can't call it scotch. That comes from, you know, and so... Bourbon is our drink. That's a lot of people think bourbon has to be made in Kentucky or Bourbon County. 
it's a, that's it's not, not true. Even a yeah, in Bourbon County, right? <laughs> Isn't that funny? But bourbon can be made in any state in the United States, and a lot of people are just starting to learn that with the birth of really cool whiskey distilleries across the United States and mm-hmm. not just in Kentucky, and which I think is really cool. Earlier, we talked about all of our fun products, but 80% of our production is bourbon, mm. 15% is rye, and then 5% is the other stuff like like we talked about, mm-hmm. all kind of the specialty grains and everything else. And so we make mostly bourbon. There's a saying that you got to like what you make because you might end up drinking it all yourself. <laughs> and I've always loved bourbon and that's just <laughs> my thing. <laughs> This is a sustainable, you described this as a sustainable farm. Can you just talk a little bit about what that looks like? What are the sustainable practices? Uh, How is Frey Ranch sustainable? We call it common sense sustainability because we're not trying to do it because it's the catchy thing to do or whatever. But as farmers, we have to take really good care of our soil, our natural resources, our environment. Otherwise, we don't have a future. And so it's really important for us to do naturally. And so if you look at the bottom of every one of our bottles, it says, be good to the land and the land will be good to you. So first of all, we're not hauling in grain from hundreds or thousands of miles away. There's several distilleries in Kentucky that haul in grain from places like Canada and all the way from Germany, like Mm. several of them, especially like rye, for example. So we're literally growing it surrounding the distillery. So it's not a huge amount of energy to get it to us, first of all. And then things like the byproducts that come off the stills, the solids get separated from the liquids. The solids get fed to the dairy cows that are next door. They're not ours, but um, they go to the dairy. The liquid goes into our irrigation system. It's very acidic and our ground's a little on the alkaline side. So when they make their way to the field, they help balance the pH so we can fix the soil so we can grow a better crop. Actually beneficial. Um, There's a guy that stopped by the distillery one time and he said he wanted to put in a distillery in Truckee, California. They said just to put that liquid down the drain, they'd have to put 20 parts water to every one part of that liquid which is a tremendous amount of waste in water. Mm-hmm. Like we go through like 4,000 gallons a day. It'd be like 80,000 gallons of water we'd have to dump with it just to dump it, just it down the drain. doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so we're beneficial being here on the farm and actually able to utilize it. The dairy next door makes manure. It's the best fertilizer there is as every available nutrient that a plant might need. So we spread that on our fields to grow a better crop. So now we're not hauling in commercial fertilizer from around the world. I mean, most fertilizer comes from either like South Africa, Russia, um, Canada, like all over the world. And you think about how much energy it takes to get it from there to here mm-hmm. and the refinement and everything else where we can actually take a byproduct from less than a mile away and spread it on our fields is is very beneficial. Then our cooling water for all the stills. So, you know, the basics of distillation are you heat up anything with alcohol in it. It begins to boil that boiling alcohol turns into a vapor. Well, then you have to condense that boiling alcohol back into a liquid. The way that we do that is we have a heat exchanger. It basically uses just water to cool the vapor, and then it condenses the vapor back into liquid. Well, we have a reservoir on the farm where we just pump the water basically from the reservoir through the still and back to the reservoir. Or we're not using a lot of electricity that Mm. they might need for a big antifreeze chiller. We priced it out one time. It costs like several hundred thousand dollars worth of electricity to put it in perspective to run a chiller for us. And we we consume virtually no <laughs> electricity the way that we cool it. What else, Ash? I think you nailed them all. But I, I think just the premise of it being common sense and something that we've always done um, is mm. really important because, as Colby mentioned, we don't do it because it's trendy. We don't do it because we want to use that word sustainable. We do it because that's just life on the farm. Yeah. So, and things like 
I, I talked to some people that had a distillery in like San Francisco, for example. It costs them more to haul their grain mm-hmm. out of the city than they make off selling it. So they yeah. just put it in the dumpster or they they dump it, you know? And mm. so there's so much um, nutritional value or in like you know, even nutrition for cows in that it's like a shame that they wouldn't use it. But yeah. 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 How is the business grown since you started doing specifically whiskey? Have you kind of scaled up and grown and what's the last decade look like? So, I mean, we started off, I think the first year we made about 4,000 cases yeah. Like around 50,000 bottles of whiskey. Um, and then last year we made 80,000, so almost a million bottles of whiskey. <laughs> we kind of ramped up production pretty good there. I think now it's going to kind of l- not level off, but it's not going to be quite that drastic over the next five or six more years. Right. But, yeah, I, uh, I asked earlier about the limits of the land, but there's also the limits of how much whiskey you can sell. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. And that's it. And that's the not it's not really a problem, but that's the challenge is trying to figure out today what we can sell five years from now. And there's Mm. a lot of things that can happen in five or six years until it's ready. Yeah, Yeah. I think um, our team has been really strategic on our growth too. We launched in Nevada in December of 2019. And it was a lot of fun. Um, Typically brands don't launch in December because most of the stores have already purchased their um, allotment and they spend all their money mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and they're looking for champagne you know for New Year's Eve and I think we just nailed it and our expectations were totally exceeded but then COVID hit which was a total like game changer in the industry because obviously bars and restaurants were closed mm. I mean even liquor stores were closed um, so and yeah, our first year, we launched in December of 2019 in northern Nevada only. It was like December 5th. I think we sold 800 cases in like from December 5th till the end of the year. That was like way beyond our expectations. Mm-hmm. And so that was only in northern Nevada. We launched in Las Vegas in February of 2020. And we had this whole new approach of there's on-premise, which is like bars and, and restaurants. You consume it on the premise. Mm-hmm. And there's off-premise, which is like a liquor store or a grocery store where you buy it and you take it off-premise and consume it. So um, we had this on-premise focus because we said, we don't have enough whiskey if this keeps up. Mm. So we had this new focus on on-premise in Las Vegas. We got into 370 <laughs> or something like that on-premise locations in the month of February in Las Vegas. And then COVID hit the next Mm. month in March of 2020. And every one of them got shut down. And then we're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? Like, I think we went from selling a lot of cases to like two. Nothing, yeah. Yeah. And so then we're like, now we need to figure this out. So then we refocused on the Mm off-premise and still met our goals and everything was, was great. Since then, we've launched in California which is a huge state to to tackle. It's actually Mm -hmm. the number one whiskey-consuming state in the nation. And we recently launched in Arizona and then Ohio. Georgia. Georgia. And then uh, next on our list is Texas. But we really want to do a good job in each state before we move on. So it's not just about that initial launch. It's really about saturating the market, getting in the right accounts, focusing on our messaging, what's working, not working, and um, really kind of, being embraced by the state that we're in. You know, it's easy for someone to buy that first bottle, but you want them to go back and buy the second bottle. Mm. And that I think is a true testament to your brand. Yeah. And actually, so you do a lot of the the branding and the marketing and that kind of telling the story yeah. of Frey Ranch, yeah. right? And you've talked a little bit about expanding. What's it like going into new markets 
there's obviously a strong interest in Frey Ranch here in Northern Nevada yeah. because we're here in Northern yeah. Nevada. How do you go about telling that story when you don't have the local connection to yeah. the place that you're going to? Totally. I think, um, you know, we really focus on our process. We grow 100% of our grains right on site and people gravitate towards that, especially in California where agriculture is so prevalent. They do have that connection and they do understand how rare that is. And for that, we've been embraced a lot in California. And I would say Northern California is one of our top markets because of the proximity to Fallon. We actually have a ton of customers that drive over the hill for our single barrel releases. Mm. And um, there's a whiskey group called the River City Whiskey Society. And they are really strong. <laughs> they show up in numbers. And um, it's been really awesome, you know, to see those familiar faces here at the ranch. But um, I would say that as we expand beyond California, what was really cool as our community online has grown and our just, you know, outreach, we went to Arizona and people recognized us and we thought, oh my gosh, this is wild that they know who we are and they're familiar with our product. And as we expand even further from the West Coast, we hope that carries on. It just really shows that people are following us on social, they're joining our email list, they're um, learning about us and you know listening to yeah. our messaging. We just went, I went to Georgia a couple months ago and we launched in Georgia and I was really surprised that I think almost every account that we went into had already heard about Frey Ranch. Hmm. And so that was really mm -hmm. cool. But we really feel also like we fit within, I don't know if you call them a foodie type crowd yeah, because mm, it's fun. about... We fit in with people who care about what they're getting and where it came from. So, like, we it could also be considered like the farmers market crowd. Gotcha. You know, and yeah. Anybody who really cares about where the ingredients and the conditions of what they're eating and drinking and where it comes from, I think is and the story behind. Yeah, it. and the story mm -hmm. behind it is just the the consumer that really gravitates to Frey Ranch. Yeah, and do you think that there's more of that in the spirits world? People wanting something that's higher quality or something totally, that yeah. has a story behind it. I do. And I think that there's this whole idea of these legacy brands in Kentucky. And, you know, we've, we all love and enjoy Maker's Mark, Jim Beam, but we want to see like what's next, mm. what else is out there. And that's why, you know, Frey Ranch is really starting to pop up on a lot of people's radar. And, and there's some other really cool distilleries on the West Coast. You've got Westward that's up in Portland. We went and visited them. They've got a really great single barrel or single malt. Um, they do single barrels too, but they've got a great program up there. And it's just this idea of kind of seeing what's next and what else is out there besides Kentucky bourbons. Mm -hmm. Is there technology that plays into that too? Like new technology or new ways of working that allow you to move forward or move beyond what we've seen before? Or is whiskey all made in basically the same way it always has been? That's kind, a good question. Kind of. yeah. So we do a couple things pretty different from Kentucky. So traditionally, there's been either pot stills or continuous stills. And, and like I said earlier, the basic part of distillation is alcohol has a lower boiling point than most liquids. The boiling point's 172 degrees. You heat anything with alcohol in it above 172, the alcohol begins to boil. That boiling alcohol, you condense it back into a liquid. There's a couple different types of stills. The most common one, especially in Kentucky, is called a continuous still. Just a giant column that you pump in liquid at the top. So it'd be beer, like anything with alcohol in it, but uh, beer is fermented grain. Mm -hmm. Pump it in the top. In the bottom, you inject steam, and as the beer mash falls down the column, the steam heats it up, 
the alcohol begins to boil. It goes up towards the top of the column. There's a series of condensers that condenses that back down and it's a continuous operation. So as you're pumping in mash at the top, steam at the bottom, you're getting out alcohol nonstop. Mm. Um, it's really efficient, but um, a lot of the smaller distilleries have pot stills. Now pot stills, just one pot at a time. It's just like it sounds. So you fill up the pot with anything with alcohol in it. You heat it up. The alcohol begins to boil. It goes through a condenser. It's, it's very, it's very, very simple, but in all alcohol, there's things that are toxic like methanol and acetone, very small quantities. Not, I mean, it's nothing to worry about, but they almost always have lower boiling points than alcohol. So what we do is we heat up, well, let me back up a pot still. What you do is you heat it up pretty slow. You collect all the distillate that comes off first and it's mm. called the heads and you throw it away. Then the middle run or the hearts is the good stuff that you want to keep. Towards the end is kind of oily and off flavored. It's as the temperature rises in the pot, you're getting out different compounds and these oils that you might, there's nothing really wrong with them. It's just not the quality that we would want to put in the barrel. And so we can get rid of those too. Hmm. Whereas we do that with different boiling points, right? Well, you can't really do that in a continuous still because it's a continuously pumped in hmm. and continuously steams pump it going. And right. so what's really kind of cool about what we do is we use both. Because the problem with a pot still is it's really slow. You can't do a lot of quantity with it. Mm. You know, it's you got to fill it up. You have to wait for it to heat up, collect your heads, hearts, tails, wait for it to cool down, empty it out, start over again. And so in our mash after fermentation is about 8% alcohol. So what we do is we run that through the continuous stills. We cut it from 8% alcohol to about 40% alcohol in the continuous stills. Then we put that 40% alcohol in the pot still and we redistill everything in the pot still. Mm. And that way we can take a heads, a hearts, and a tails cuts. But now we're getting five times more per batch because instead of putting 8% mash in the pot still, uh. we're putting in 40% alcohol. So now we're getting quality and quantity while still being able to take the heads, the hearts, and the tails cuts. And so it's completely different. Vendome Copper and Brass made our still. They had made hundreds, if not thousands of continuous stills, the same thing with tons of pot stills, but they never made them where they work in unison like a, like ours. Hmm. Cool. It's a lot. Yeah. I mean, so that's, that's like really part. thinking there's, out. There's a lot of little <laughs> stuff. Like, I mean, if you talk about like getting more efficient, everything else, I mean, we have um, flow controls that can pump it in the continuous stills very consistently and automatically ramp up and down because you got things like tank pressure changes the flow. So when your tank's full, you turn your pump on and you think you're pumping right. Well, when it starts to empty out, your pump might not be pumping as fast. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So a flow control that automatically adjusts it and keeps it consistent is kind of like kind of fun and, you know, things like that. We have steam generators. This is another thing kind of going back to, I don't know if I'd call this sustainable, but really efficient is we have steam generators rather than a boiler. So a boiler is either on or off. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's a, it's a switch, right? We have steam generators that can have steam within a minute. Like a boiler takes about an hour to heat up before you even get steam. And they fire in the rate that the demand requires. So as we turn on more stills, we turn up the steam, anything like that, it fires up at a higher rate. So, I mean, you go in there at a normal day and we're only running one still, it might only be running at 27%. You turn on another still, it might mm. be running at 56%. Then you turn on a mash cooker and it ramps up to 100%. What's cool about this is also there's two of them. So when one gets to 100%, then the other one fires mm. and, and we start running them both. 
that way we can be really efficient. Rather than having one giant one that takes a little bit more, we have two that are a little bit more efficient when they work together. Saves a tremendous amount of gas that fires them and everything else. So, But that's kind of like this technology like we're talking yeah. about now. And then on the farm, there's all kinds of stuff like auto steer for tractors. Mm. It'll automatically do a straight line. The problem with when you're steering a tractor, a lot of times you're either overlapping a couple feet or you're missing a, you know, a section. And well, when you're doing that, it's not efficient. So now you're wasting diesel, you're wasting tractor tires that wear out faster. You're wasting oil changes happen sooner because you're mm-hmm. getting less done and everything else. And then there's things like our leveling system on the farm. All of our water is all gravity. We don't have any pumps or anything like that. And so we have two tractors going right now in the field and they work off of satellites and they triangulate with a base station here on the farm. And it talks to the tractor and it has a scraper on the back and it'll automatically raise and lower within one one hundredth of an inch. And it will, if it's reading a little bit high, it'll lower and dig out the high spot. If it's reading a little bit low, it'll raise up and let some dirt out to fill up the low spot. And it makes the water really efficient. So um, we do that up and down and we circle it so that each check, so a check has two levees on each side and each check is perfectly flat from side to side. And as you go down the check, it goes down about 15 hundredths to two tenths of a foot every hundred feet you go down. So that's very little. I mean, it's a couple inches uh, every hundred feet, mm-hmm. but the water will flow really evenly and slowly down the field. And when you don't have really level fields, it's not good because you're wasting a lot of water because you're filling up a lot of puddles. You might not be getting the dry, you know, the high spots. And then it's it sours the ground. Your plants don't grow as good. You know, you're not as efficient. And it's really a, yeah. like a modern take on farming and distilling, which I think mm-hmm. is just our evolution of like young entrepreneurs and how yeah. we've evolved and not done things certain ways because that's the way they were always done, but mm-hmm. because we've found ways to be more efficient, more economical. But a lot of things, that's yeah. the best way. So and the we, best way, that's yeah. That's why we always call it, it's like the common sense one. It's yeah. not, we don't do it to fit inside of a box either. It's it's what makes the yeah. most sense. And it's, once again, like like water savings, for example. I mean, we, we need to save and take care of our natural resources. So if we can consume less water, you know, by having a field that's out of level, is not it's not going to get irrigated as evenly. It's not going to grow as good. So now you maybe have a low spot. Water to, uh, plants don't like to grow underwater. So mm-hmm. now if you have a low spot in your field, it pools up and it doesn't grow well. Well, now you've wasted the natural resources too of the seed that you put on it, the, the time it took you to plant the seed. Mm-hmm. The water just got wasted, everything else. And so it's it's really important to kind of pay attention to everything on the farm. And uh, Russell, our master distiller, is also a certified crop consultant. He uses an analogy. If you take a whiskey barrel and you you flip it upright and you take the head of it off and you try to fill it up, well, if one of the staves, the staves are the part that go up and, you know, the the long slats on it, if one of those staves is cut in half and you try to fill up the barrel, you can only fill it up halfway. Even if all the other staves are all the way, and it's that way with like fertilizer, for example, if you're lacking certain nutrients um, or a one nutrient, but you have lots of other ones, then your plant can only get so far. Because you kind of have to pay attention to everything. It's like yeah. that with the farm. You have to pay attention to your irrigation. And then you also have to pay attention to make sure your fields are level and you're you're being really efficient in everything that you do. Yeah. Do you find it fun to be of the, you know, era and generation where you're figuring out better ways to do things on the farm instead of just grinding away at the way it's been done before? Yeah. What did, what did we talk about the other day? What's like the 
definition of insanity. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> the same thing over yeah. different results. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, there, it's not to say that they did it wrong back then, but they did, they'd used what they had and mm-hmm. they did the best yeah. that they could. But I bet you 50 or 80 years ago, they were doing things a lot different than their 50 mm-hmm. to 80 mm-hmm. or, people, you know, forefathers did. And so we're just continuing it on. It's not like they did it like that for a thousand years. Right. They were also at the forefront of like what we're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we just, we're just continuing that on. We're not necessarily changing it. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Technology marches on, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's really taking advantage of what, what we can and what's yeah. offered and yeah. Yeah. I know that you collaborate with various businesses here in Northern Nevada. You they're like with Dorinda Chocolates, you have mm-hmm. like a Frey Ranch and Dorinda Chocolates. Uh, Blind Dog Coffee was yeah. here. And I know, yep. I guess they age, Colby, you were telling me they age the coffee beans in Frey Ranch barrels. Yeah. Used barrels. So you get some of that good bourbon in there. So. Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about that as a, as a strategy and as a way to connect with other businesses in Northern Nevada and your experience of working with other businesses yeah, to, so, to collaborate and co-brand stuff? Um, it's been a lot of fun being able to um, have these brand partnerships with Dorinda's and Blind Dog. We're really tapping into each other's um, consumer base, which, you know, from a marketing standpoint is really fun and exciting. But my favorite way to drink whiskey is with chocolate. So why not find a really fantastic chocolate company in northern Nevada and see if they'll infuse some of our whiskey in it and really the best of both worlds. Colby, if you see him on an average day, he's probably on like cut four, five of coffee. So <laughs> 18. <laughs> 18. So really just kind of combining some of our loves and and things that we really enjoy with other really great Northern Nevada businesses. And it allows them to come here, interact with our customers. And we've done great events up at Ranchera with Dorinda's um, and really kind of tap into some of their customers. And, you know, it's, you have like these whiskey geeks who want the cash strength whiskey and they like to drink it straight, but then you have this whole other consumer base and, you know, they want the cocktails. They want to, you know, how does it pair with food? And, um, that's what I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of like our used bourbon barrels will go to a lot of breweries. Yes, so, I mean, yeah. there's, oh, I don't know. There's like pretty, um, I'm pretty sure almost all yeah. of the local <laughs> breweries have gotten some of our barrels and, mm-hmm. and then Great Basin did, some... did a great, um, is it their, what's it called? The. Oh, I don't, I don't remember the name, but I, I they did a the really fantastic yeah. barrel aged. And beer, then we yeah. did yeah. one with like 50, 50, mm-hmm. they did their eclipse series with our whiskey, which is kind of mm-hmm. cool. I saw yeah. a lot of people in like our, our, our fans in Sacramento got a lot of yeah. that. <clears throat> and, uh, lead dog has a, a brand new yes. one too. Yeah. I host, yeah. I host trivia at lead dog on Mondays and just oh, last cool. night. I saw in their fridge yeah. a, a brand new beer that's yeah. a, it's aged in the rye barrels. Yeah, yeah. like farmers, a barrel aged stout. Oh, yeah, farmers, farmers brewing yeah. in Cal in Princeton, California. So they grow a lot of their grains that go into their beer. It's a really cool place. And it was yeah. a really cool place. So they got a bunch of our barrels and did a a barrel aged beer. Mammoth Brewing, I think, and then we did another coffee with Hub Coffee Roasters mm-hmm. a long time ago. Um, yeah, or last year. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Ashley, I know that in a lot of the spirit industry and the farming world mm-hmm. too, a lot of this is like male-dominated industries. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about women in the spirits world and in yeah. the bourbon world? Um, it's really interesting and it's a fun time, you know, to be a woman in whiskey and in the bourbon category because it is the fastest growing subsegment of whiskey is women drinking whiskey. Mm. So as we travel and we go to new places – you know, we, that's just one fun story. We were in Sacramento and we did a, I think it was like a hosted happy hour or like a 
cocktail competition and this lady came up to me and she said, gosh, I never do these events because I'm always the only woman, but because I knew you were going to be here, I wanted to come. And I thought, oh my gosh, that made me so happy. And it was such a fun moment because normally it's like me, you know, sitting around the table with all the men, but there's so many more women that are drinking whiskey, enjoying it, writing about it. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of great journalists that are now writing about bourbon and whiskey and cocktails. So there's, there's a lot of people who are really like leading the way and some great brands like Uncle Nearest who, you know, their whole leadership team is all females. <laughs> Gosh, uh, who Heather Green from Milliam and Green out of Texas. They're a women-led team um, putting out some fantastic whiskeys. So more women are really involved in the whiskey industry and being featured. So it's it's been a lot of fun. Right on. Um, what's it like working together in a family business with your spouse and building something together, yeah. uh, spending all the all the time together, doing all the business together? I really wouldn't know any other yeah, way. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know what it'd be like. like it, I think it would be that weird we, if we did it. If yeah, Ashley didn't work. I think here we each kind of have like our own specialties. So. Colby really takes the lead on the farm and works with Russell in the distillery. And I really take more of the lead in the marketing and the consumer experience and really the storytelling of the brand. And I think we respect each other's space and what we bring to the table. Um, it's we're a good yeah. team because what I'm my weaknesses are her strengths and mm-hmm. vice versa. So yeah. For sure. What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about Frey Ranch, the work you're doing? Yeah, I think just we would love for people to come see us. You know, we're open every Saturday, noon to four. Um, We do complimentary tours and tastings. And um, if you want to be the first to know about any of our releases, partnership, events, join our email list, freyranch.com. It's the pop-up. Yeah, Call it the dirt. The dirt. So if you want Mm. the dirt on Frey Ranch, join our email list. We promise we won't spam you, but we do send out some really like juicy content, right? No, like, well, (laughs) we shouldn't call it dirt. It really should be the soil. That doesn't sound as good. Um, Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's it's really great. Like I said, I came out here for the the Saturday with the food trucks a mm-hmm. couple days ago. And it was great to go on the tour and see how everything works. And it's really great to sit down with you and learn more about the story of Frey Ranch. Because like you said, the story really matters, I think, for a lot of people being here in Northern Nevada and being able to learn more about a Northern Nevada-based business that is really growing and doing fun stuff for this area is really cool. So thank you so much for yeah, taking you. the time. Well, thank you for having us. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guests, Ashley and Colby Frey from Frey Ranch Farm and Distillery. It was great to be able to go and see the distillery and farm and learn about what they do out there. If you get a chance, go out and visit them in Fallon. Again, their tasting room is open Saturdays. Next week's episode is with Lynette Eddy. You may know her as the founder of Eddy House, the shelter for youth age 18 to 24. She also has a new book that was just released. We were excited to have her on the show and talk about her career and work. That's next Tuesday. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode or any other and you want to support the show, there's also free ways to do that just by telling your friends and family. Post about it on social media. Help us spread the word and let people know about the show. It really does make a huge difference. Word of mouth is everything for a project like this. So spread the word. That's all we've got for you this week. See you next time. (laughs) 